podcast one production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to A Plate to Call Home, where we explore the stories behind the food that we all love. Do you drink milk or eat cheese or butter, or maybe you're one of a growing band of people that don't, for whatever reason? Well, either way, this episode may make you think a little differently about some of the choices you make. I know it's made me think about it, that's for sure. Kathy Palmer is the founder and operator of How Now Milk Farm that's aiming to change the way we farm and produce milk. You might not know, but dairy farming has in recent years come under fire for some of the most controversial farming practices around, some of which, to be frank, are quite brutal. Well, How Now is attempting something pretty radical, which is to produce milk in what Kathy calls a kinder way. I got her on the show to talk about these practices and how her farm produces dairy. But what I didn't expect was an entirely different past, and we ended up talking about stories of Bernard Fanning, Tim Rogers and Nick Cave. Why? Well, you'll just have to listen to find out. So we're going to dive straight in and we're going to try and set this up and find out what's wrong with the dairy industry or maybe not what's wrong with it but what's going on what's happening because everybody's talking about it milk for example Mm. you know we go to the supermarket we look most people are confused from your perspective how how does it look what's explain Uh, well i think it's really it's all of a sudden become a sexy product again which i love but um I think there's uh, the animal awareness has really started to kick in for dairy. And so I think um, people are starting to question where are we going with milk? What's really the truth behind it? And when I found out the truth behind it, um, I was horrified. So, um, you know, 500,000 calves a year in Australia alone being slaughtered, uh, taken away from their mums at birth. So I think that... Um, that's one of the things that social media does amazingly. You know, it took 15 years to get um, air for free-range eggs and all of a sudden bobby calves just bang. It's on, the, it's on the agenda. Everyone's talking about it. And there's a bit of a scrambling for um, that awareness of everyone's talking about boutique milk, but there was an expectation from so many people that boutique milk was doing everything ethically and uh, like organic and biodynamics. And it's not about dissing anyone. It's about what's really happening out there. Mm. And when you rip that Band-Aid off, it ain't a pretty picture. <laughs> so is it, it's been called the dairy industry's dirty secret. I totally so agree. people have been drinking milk and not thinking about it for, you know, I don't know. You know in, in Well, in recent times, let's say 40 or 50 years, you know, mm. in, in our kind of memories and not thinking about it. Mm. I, I think um, when you, I was amazed when I went back started doing research before I started How Now Dairy and I started looking at the advertising. You know what really shocked me is how often there were calves used in milk ads and how none of us actually kind of just went, if there's a calf in it, does that mean that there's there's something else going on. We just all went, oh, look, a smiley little calf and we're all drinking milk. And mm. 
I don't think we really questioned it. And that's the reality now where we've got, and, you know, intensive farming is becoming a massive issue. I was going to say, it wasn't always like this, was it? I don't think so. I mean, you know, um, Les, my business partner, was, he grew up third generation dairy farmer and they used to all hand out milk from Farmgate. Um, Everyone was allowed to come and buy it. And now, you know, with the raw milk being made illegal and even the, now if you sell bath milk, you've got to put that bittering agent in it. So, every- so when you mean bath milk, it, it was a <laughs> sneaky way of selling so, raw milk and yeah. people buying it to drink it. Yeah. Um, but then obviously there's health risks. So the regulations kicked in. Yeah. And when the regulations kicked in, it started to change the whole industry, I think. And now you've got, there's much more focus on probably intensive farming as dairy farmers came under pressure, prices, and now every it's normal practice in Australia at least for a calf to be born and removed from its mother before the mother even touches it and put into a pen, which I this is where I go, hang on. So they pick them up, put them into a pen that's not that far away from mum and then feed the calves the milk from the dairy. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I cut out the middleman. But why, yeah, why do they do that? There's a reason. Because I suppose if you remove the, uh, you know, any kind of ethical kind of standpoint, yep. standpoint, and you look at production and the, the, you know, the dairy farmer's perspective, he's got to get as much milk as possible from his herd. They're doing it for a reason, aren't they? Yeah, price. And, and is it? Yeah, I, there's been a um, a bit of a trend talking about illness, and I think that was scaremongering. So started telling people that if they left the calves with the cows, there'd be disease transferred between the mother and the calf. Well, how come that never existed previously? So and then so that was one thing that they managed to do quite successfully to um, encourage farmers. But then ultimately you're left with farmers who are getting the same price now that they were 15 right. years ago. But this wouldn't be in the public domain because I don't hear that. So no. that's that's what what is that? Is that lobby groups, farmers groups lobbying government or trying to uh, affect law or... For the disease? Or yeah, for example. So, you know, they must have lobbied at some level. I don't know. I, I mean, the change would have happened for some reason and then become standard practice. I always remember that they talked about house cows as people still would keep house cows, you know, keep a calf on, but there was always excess milk. So a newborn calf takes three to five litres of milk. High production dairies, you've got cows producing 40 litres of milk. So I think we can spare it. It's the management. It becomes a bit more intense on the management side of those calves, mum yeah. and, and baby together. That becomes a bit different. Yeah. Do you think people, when... Do the, in terms of awareness, I don't think. Do you think people have any idea at that level? Five hundred thousand calves yeah. as a byproduct of us drinking milk is I, extraordinary. I don't. I really, I really don't because I know the people that find out about how now um, are really shocked, and I've had people confront me and say that's not true, and I will say go to the go to the regulated bodies who actually produce these numbers. Yeah. So the chances are it's potentially more because they're only the ones that make it into slaughter yards. Yeah. What do what do other farmers say about you? <laughs> well <laughs> I get interesting comments about me. Um I have I'm in this interesting place where um dairy farmers generally aren't big fans of my what I do and Neither are vegans. So I'm on this little island called the How Now Island, um, which is um, basically the ethical the ethical approach. Most dairy farmers, when they talk to me, say, you can't scale that up. 
And I say, no, I don't really want to scale it up. I want to bring back more and more Aussie farms, which used to be the norm that the animals, there was 120 cows on an Aussie farm, dairy farm, and now um, average is more likely, well, the high production dairies have 4,000 cows. But uh, as you're watching in the news constantly, all those dairy farms that are owned by families are all just shutting down. So average herd size is more like, you know, over 500 that's got a massive impact on how you manage the animals because they are now units that are calculating output. So have you had any nasty arguments with a <laughs> farmer about... So when you say they can't scale it up, that's not the end of the conversation, is it? No, that's not the, that's not the end of it. I Usually I always talk to them about how it used to be, probably when they started or their dads started, and that that's, a, that's still out there. If people... The argument is always goes back to price. People don't really want to pay um, the correct price for milk. And I always find it, you know, I do so many posts where I take a, I walk into a store and I take a bottle of water and I take a photo and I take a bottle of milk and take a photo and say, what the hell? Like, this mm. is just insanity. $3 for water, $1.20 for milk. That's the yeah. big price. But $3 off. for water, how much water? It's like yeah, 350 six, mils yeah, or totally. 600 mils. So it's yeah. not $3.50 for the water because that's a two-litre bottle of milk, isn't yep, it? Yep, that's right. And you'll buy that in the supermarkets, yeah. not how now, but, you know, $2.30. A comedian said, um, when did it be, I can't remember who it was, but they said, when did it become cheaper to drink water that's been filtered through a cow? Yeah. And what they <laughs> meant was you can go and buy two litres of milk for a couple of dollars and yet if you yep. bought two litres of water it's going to cost you like $18. And it's true and that's I think that's where people, we've lost our way in that aspect. You know, people buy, like artisan cheese is making a fantastic comeback. Yeah. So people are buying that and paying proper prices but then you buy a block of cheese, you know, tasty cheese for the kids' toasted sandwich and you pay six or seven bucks. So people, there's that artisan coming in and I think it's, I think there's a rebirth happening in the food industry. But if you're up against big conglomerates like <laughs> Parmalat and big dairy farms, you know, with 4,000 cows on when you've got 120, then the change is pretty slow, isn't it? It is. Is it going to change much? I'm absolutely firmly of the belief it will. I think social media plays an amazing role with that because I can I put videos of our cows and our calves up and I show people what's going on on our farm and people are just moved. Once they see it and once they see that it's possible and I've I answered the question a million times about um, but how do you have enough milk? And when I just lay it out, there's a, car, a newborn calf, three to five litres, a low production cow is 20 litres. There's plenty of milk there to share. So it's about people saying, yep, I'm going to vote with my wallet. Mm. So people will make decisions to buy organic produce, uh, which, you know, I really support that. So they'll pay four times the price for an organic broccoli or something, but not think about that with milk, with dairy. And that's where the change has to really come yeah. in. Why can't why can't a big farm? So all the farms that I presume where are you? Where's your farm? Shepparton. So how many dairy farms are around you? There used to be probably sixty odd, and now I think I'm, you're watching them disappear, kind of one one every couple of months because right. we're in drought as well, and they're just going bankrupt. So um, there's probably around about fifteen around us now. Are they taking the remaining land, remaining farms, or it's just 15 as they were? Yeah, as just they were. struggling and scratch and trying mm. to make a living. How can, how can they not scale up your kind of production? What's the, what's the roadblock? 
to uh, so if you got a, if you got a farm with four thousand cows on it, why can't you scale up and do it properly and and re- keep the carbs and keep the carbs. I actually, well, to me, the animals lose their personality once you get up to that size because they just become robots. And that's something that Les was always very um, clear about when he was, he's a dairy nutritional consultant. So we used to have many conversations about that and he became quite... um, disheartened by watching that transition across from the family farm to the corporate farm where, you know, if his job was always to get milk out of cows, to feed them the perfect nutritional balance to get the best and the best and the most milk. And as he said, it was just always another increment. So he used to have this conversation. They, they, they are still animals. They're not machines. And we often forget that. So when you look at a 4,000 cow dairy, there's no recognition of a personality as a living, thinking, breathing, feeling animal. You go on to smaller dairy farms, even the ones that, you know, ones that remove calves, they know all their cows and they know they know their little quirks and their personalities. They have their friendships. And ours is another level where they can do kind of probably too much of what they want in some ways. We've got a cow that walks in every morning, midnight. She walks into the dairy. First thing she does is start. She pulls on the feeder, grabs a sniff there, then pulls on the next feeder all the way through. We've only got five feeders. She just walks through every single one. That's the ultimate of a cow personality. But... I don't think that you can ever maintain that once you go up to a certain, past a certain level. Mm. What? So it, paint a picture for those that haven't seen your Instagram feed, mm-hmm. paint a picture of what your form, farm looks like. So I mean, we've just talked about, what's that, <laughs> what, do you have names for your cows? Or every no? cow has a name. What was and her every, name? Her name was Midnight because she's right. jet black, so I'm really creative. When you said with Midnight, my... I thought it was Midnight. <laughs> she was born at Midnight. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> no, she's, um, she, so she was jet black. And as I say, right. I'm really creative with my name. So uh, how now when you come onto our farm, I mean, we're on a tiny farm. We're only on 56 acres. So, and we're in the irrigation area. So our farm, you pretty much come in and you'll see there's a couple of different paddocks going on. One is where you'll have um, the mums who are having a break, we get, you know, to have a nice holiday before they carve. And then you'll have the other one where there's mums with calves who are coming into the dairy. So if you're there at milking time, you'll see mums and calves walking into the dairy. We don't have motorbikes and we don't have dogs. Um, so pretty much the girls run their own show. But they're they're creatures of habit and routine. And then you'll also see, if we're successful on that day, um, the weaned calves. We wean them gradually over a period of time. And that's the one area that I've got to say is really tricky because um, like a three-year-old that still wants to be breastfed by mum, they still want to go back. So we're still trying all these different methods that you – that that can keep the calf with the mum. One of them is there's these little kind of plastic rings that can go into their nose and everyone said that they have massive success with those. I read about them overseas. Our calves worked out in about two days how to hold that back and drink. <laughs> so, so once you've got a calf that's um, our girl's six months, I posted a photo a couple of weeks ago and there's a calf that's back is literally about 10 centimetres below mum and she's still, you know, trying to get onto mum and have a feed. Now she'll drain mum in about 30 seconds. So there's no milk left then. So you do have to create that management. So it's still a farm. It's, you've still got to produce milk. We do. And you've got a, a kind of an optimal point 
that you can hopefully wean the calves off. Yep. Yeah. And then male and female, because I'm I'm assuming that in the dairy industry, the big problem with uh, bobby calves mm. is they're male. Yes. So there's no use for those. So we use. So that's vaccine. why they're slaughtered within days of yep. being born, right? Five days. So yeah. boys go one way, girls go the other way. The, are the girls then grown into dairy cu- dairy cows? Not all of them. Um, there are there is a growing market now for someone that's called a grower, and they grow the, the Calves, and so a dairy farmer sells all the all the um, females, all the heifers, to a grower, right. and then they grow them, and then they sell them off to other dairy farms when they're at yeah. that age. So the reality, in, and I'm just getting it straight, the reality yeah. in high production is that you want your your cows pregnant, so they give birth because then they yeah. produce milk, mm-hmm. and then you're constantly keeping them producing pregnant. milk by getting yeah. them pregnant, yep, and getting rid of the calves. <laughs> yes. So on your farm. How does it, what do you do with all the calves? So how long do the calves stay with you? So first of all, we use sex semen. So I only have female calves generally. Um, You still get the occasional uh, male calf, but we keep them all together. So mum and baby, doesn't matter what the the gender is, and occasionally there's twins, uh, they all stay together for the first three months at least before, unless there's something that's going wrong with the calf drinking way, way, way too much um, because cows are now produced and they've been bred so they produce way too much milk for a calf. So our girls will all be, it looks the same as a normal dairy farm except there's only... 40 girls being milked. (laughs) So you'll just see cows and calves wandering towards the dairy and our girls will all be, them go back out in the paddock with their calves or milling around. There's not a lot of activity on our farm though because we don't have to do all the, um, that high production. So you're not searching for the next litre of milk. So the girls aren't moved paddocks rotating as um, kind of intensely as if you're in a high production herd. And once the calves are weaned, then um, we are growing ours, um, keeping ours to go through and join in the dairy. My dream is that I'll eventually have a dairy farmer and, and I've got a couple that I'm talking to now that will want to join us. And then I'll have enough girls to be able to organise something so they can start producing our way. Because what we have really seen, Gary, is there's a massive change in our next generation. So we've got our first two girls. Our first girl that was born on the farm was called Eve. First boy was Adam. So (laughs) (laughs) again, we're really, really creative. (laughs) And so Eve... um, has now joined the system. So she had her first calf and we generally have our first calf later. So she was two and a half, I think, and came into the dairy and our um, Jason, who does all the milking for us now, um, he just said, I've never, ever seen this. She just walked on into the dairy because she's been there her whole life. There was no fear. There was no nervousness. She just walked on in, had the calf milling around and got milked and walked out. It's like, yeah, I know how this works. It's amazing. <laughs> Usually it creates um, when they start a new heifer, a new cow to join the system, they do this like running them through the dairy, trying to settle them down because they get quite nervous. They don't know what's going on. And I, I always say that in some ways the dairy is the house of horrors for most cows because that's where everything that's going to happen to them 
is going. That's where it happens. <laughs> have you got examples of that? I mean, well, any treatment that they'll have to sure. do. Um, generally, if there's if they go if there's going to be a calf pulled, you know, that will happen in the dairy. Um, if they want to check what's going on in the calf, they might do that while she's, you know, in 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 the dairy. Yeah. Most of the bad things will happen there. Yeah. So it's like a dog going to the vet in a sense. It knows exactly. It's, <laughs> Dragging it's not a good your place. dog. It's not a good place to be. <laughs> no. So I, I read somewhere that if you drink milk, um, you should be eating veal. Right. I don't, yeah. Because if you accept the fact, I yeah. mean, based on what you've said, mm. and we don't eat a lot of veal in Australia because no. we don't like it because it's horrifying. And that's people, the thing. people think about it because mm. this is the quite of odd um, place we found ourselves, isn't it? Where it is. we we're focused on producing large amounts of food and we're ignoring it mm. and we're letting other people do the dirty work and we just go in and buy our milk, but we won't buy veal. Yeah, that's true. So it's, it's you know, because we've read about, you know, how <laughs> veal is raised in Europe, for example, mm. particularly, you know, to keep it white and it's yeah. restricted and it's under certain light, you know, it's fed milk way beyond what it should be so they mm. get sick. So all, all these sort of terrible things. And those things. little hutches that yeah. you see in America. Yeah, got restricted movement, hutches. everything. So these, this terrible um, idea that people have about veal and yet the veal that we get in Australia, other than bobby veal, mm. which is a byproduct obviously of the dairy industry, is put out to pasture so it's pink, not white. Yes. Mm. And I so have... this idea, what do you think about this idea if, because it's funny, isn't it? You drink milk. But you won't eat veal because ethically mm. it's wrong. Yes, and yet I'm making now my stand. <laughs> you're making a stand because, no, that's terrible and you have all and these horrific ideas. don't serve it. Well, you don't serve it because mm. you can't sell it. Oh, okay. Well, it's pretty simple. Yeah. It's like rabbits. People all of a sudden, you know, 10 years, 15 years ago, went, oh, I want to eat rabbit because it's fluffy. It's a fluffy and, animal, yeah. Yeah, it's selective eating. <laughs> well, I think... They'll eat beef, but yeah. think about a rabbit in a different way. Well, that's yeah. We've just had that, haven't we, with horses? With Correct. Yeah, we think about all of our animals. Go to Sweden, and I yeah, remember all of asking, our animals in the same what way. What is that horse? So, but, what do you think about that? So, I, well, I was really shocked to find out that most of um, the young animals in Australia, that the, the um, dairy calves, that they do get slaughtered and then exported, or else they end up as pet food, which is you know the bottom of the chain for you know what of a byproduct. Yeah. So. And I've actually had um, a couple of butchers. I had a butcher and another academic contact me and ask, would I be interested in raising, because my calves are so well raised and everything, and would I consider selling veal? And I was really confronted by it myself, I've got to say, Gary, you just raised it for me. And I thought, gosh, I don't know how I feel about that. But um, because we don't like thinking about ever our animals dying, but the reality of it to create a sustainable farm for to consider that how now could become the normal, you have to think like that because it's probably irresponsible to keep every animal and raise every animal taking massive amounts of resources when there's people that do consume meat. So that I, it's probably a really growth market that will come. Do you consume meat? No. So you're vegetarian? Yeah, I'm... I'm basically, how, I don't how talk about a, it a lot. How the hell does a vegetarian, <laughs> how, does a, as a, how does a vegetarian end up running a dairy farm Funny and, you and ask that, confronting the, the true horror of the, the whole system, let alone what you have yeah. to do on your farm? So 
that actually is how it started. That's actually exactly how How Now started. Les and I, who we'd met, um, we've met, we met, knew each other probably 11 years ago, we met, and we were a couple then. And Les, conf- Les used to say to me, you call yourself an animal rights activist <laughs> and, you know, you do all these fantastic things and charities and do supporting and posting, but you consume dairy. And one day I said to him, so what, what's the big deal with dairy? Why is that such an issue? And he said, you've got to be kidding me. And he told me the truth about dairy. And I sat there feeling like an absolute moron because, you know, I thought I was enlightened and I was a, you know, go-getter on the animal rights front. And I went, I never forget, I went home and I just Googled Bobby Calves and I did not see one smiling face. I saw wheelbarrows with calves in them and just horrendous pictures and that was the aha moment and from that point on I became probably a really bad pest to Les to say we have to change this I can't keep I can't consume dairy any longer we have to change it you know how to do it I've got the drive let's do this Mm. and I think it was probably four years in the making (laughs) that it took us. Describe your activism before this happened I mean were you pretty I was brought up by a crazy mum who used to have all the stray cats dumped at our house and um, my brother went vegan, my oldest brother went vegan, no, not vegan, sorry, there was only the option of vegetarian then, um, when he was uh, 14, I think, or 15, and you're going back 40 years or so, 45 years probably, and and mum was really big on um kindness. And so mum's kindness often got misinterpreted as, um, yeah, let's just dump the kittens there that we don't want at the front of the Palmer's house. And so, you know, we'd have uh, litters of kittens. I had 13 cats when I was um, 12 years old. (laughs) And I was very proud though, Gary. I trained all the cats to eat from their one space. So that was when I really learned. I was so like, you had you know, rules in the Palmer house. Animals are smart. These things are <laughs> smart. And we had dogs that had a half a leg missing and an eye missing. And we just had all these weird. And I remember I did this little foray into um, goats. I was going to show goats. And I went to the show and I was like um, 12 years old or something. And I had my white coat on. And some cool boys walked past and cracked a joke. My hair was quite long. And I was showing an Angora goat and cracked an Angora joke about me being, which one's the goat? And I just went home and said, I don't want to show goats anymore, Mum. <laughs> so stupid. So your feelings would have been pretty strong. So, you know, this yeah. move, being then vegan and then getting to this point of realisation. Mm. Yeah, it was very, it was very confronting. Giving up um, things one at a time was really tough. Like, and that's why I don't say ever that I'm vegan ever. Also, it's become such a dirty word and um, confrontational. But I, like, I consume all our dairy and I, I still, I'm, I'm not perfect. I still consume, I love, I've got an absolute soft, a weak spot for blue cheese. Absolutely love it. I saw your cheese and I was like, damn, I want to try some <laughs> of that. I should your piece, but I'm keeping it for myself. Yeah. Gary's Selfish. house at Christmas. <laughs> so, um, you know, I always thought that you know, I can, that was our whole desire to was to change things, not rather than make it really strident. And it's like, you've got to be on this side or that side. I like the idea of a little bit of, uh, of 
tolerance. And I, I read a great post once about this, you know, thanking everyone who's doing anything, the person that recycles but doesn't know about dairy. Everyone is on their own journey and I, I really loved it. Um, this It was the environmental cowboy, which is another Aussie that's hilarious. Mm. <laughs> you probably know him. And that's the whole thing about that journey, about I really thought I was doing, I was a really good, strong animal rights activist. I support, I would go to Animals Australia events and RSPCA was top of my list and I used to petition all them for change and uh, Then when I found out that, in fact, I'm just sitting back, you know, hanging out in one of the probably, as we've said, the dirty secret of dairy, one of the the cruelest, people got really upset about the pigs. I remember that. Remember the whole sow stall stall and all that? And Mm. I think, my gosh, you know, if they just ran an ad on on any farm any given day of just calves being picked up and taken away from mum, it would change overnight. That outrage, you know, you'd have to have a, a Coles or a Woolworth say, we'll come on board, we'll change this, we'll, we'll invest in it. Why haven't they? I really don't know. I'm waiting for that call, Gary. So <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised. I, I think they're sitting back and watching. They're like you go into this, any store now and you see that wealth of vegan products and I think everyone's missing there's this gap um, 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 plenty of people who t- who consume dairy and meat products are really big supporters of How Now because they say, I do want to have, they go to farmer's markets, they buy their beef from, you know, sustainable farms and where they know exactly where it comes from. I mean, look at Provena, that fantastic mm. job they've just done with, you know, slaughtering animals in a really humane, in the most humane way you possibly can other than on the farm and we're not allowed to do that anymore. So, you know, the most humane way would be to shoot the animal on the farm, take it and get the home butcher in and do it and then sell it. You're not allowed to do that. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Animals get shunted thousands of miles in many cases. Yeah. Yeah, and, awful. And so do calves. Yeah. Calves, the, the, the rules on the transporting of calves, that was the other thing I found out and I just said, gosh, like this is just, it, it's like how many Band-Aids are here to rip off? It, it's more and more secrets. So when you set up, when you set this up, when you finally got to a point, I mean, Les, yep. you were married D- at the Liz. time. No, not married. Not married, married but partners. partner yep. at the time. Did he think it was just a ridiculous thing? Yeah. Because he'd been in the business. He'd been around it for a long time. Is that right? He had, yeah. Third generation. And then he'd... Les had also been a disruptor. So he did his PhD on... Um, on animal nutrition and specialising in dairy cows. And so he was always about the welfare of the cows whilst getting high production yields. So things like, you know, keeping the cows cool, you know, we're on we're in an area which is just full on heat, 42 degrees we had last week already. Mm. So And freezing cold in and winter. And freezing cold in winter, which the cows <laughs> actually love. That's why a lot of the dairy farms are in that um, South Australia area are doing amazingly. So, um, so Les was always a disruptor, um, but he so he could see this change that he really become quite disenfranchised with what was where it was going. But he used to say to me, "No one's going to do this. No one's going to buy this. You're, you're crazy." And I'd say, "Just let's do it. There's at least me and twenty friends. You know, <laughs> we'll fight this together." And so, I I think he took a while to be convinced, but. And it was actually, you know, the funny thing was, it was my vegan brother who turned him. He said, forget every other idea you guys have got. We had all these harebrained ideas. And um, my brother, who's 
a musician but an app developer now, he said, I walk into investment rooms every day and I'm telling you, chuck everything aside. If this had been available to me when I became vegan, I would have chosen that way. And and that's where I think that's probably where Les started to change. I said, imagine if kids from a young age, because once you, you know, kids are the eyes of truth. You look, you show, you show a kid a cow and a calf and you show a kid a cow with a calf over being taken away, they'll go that one straight away. They, so I said, imagine if they could have that choice. They could just say, I want that one, Mum, and that's what's happening now. I love making this series and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. You can do that on Apple Podcasts, Podcast One Australia or wherever you listen. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. I looked at your Instagram. I was telling Dave, <laughs> our producer, that um, I saw your Instagram and you're all over because you've been supplying various outlets in Victoria. So I have to go looking for How Now because I discovered this when I was making cheese. Yeah. This guy called Graham Redhead and he buys loads of this milk and basically because it's fantastic for making cheese. Mm. You know, so when you start, and as a chef, all of a sudden you start thinking about, hang on a minute, actually when I've got to think about next stage product, of course I've got to start with the best stuff to get the results nice that I want, hear, right? Yeah. So now you have to go looking for it. But actually, you've got it in quite a lot of outlets, particularly yeah. in Melbourne, but now you've just jumped into Sydney. So I saw um, on your Instagram post, you're doing like samples at Harris Farm. <laughs> yeah. And I'm going, Kathy, what are you doing? Like surely somebody else can do that. That's the thing. You know how many people work in our business, Gary? <laughs> how many people work in your business? You, you and you, is it? Uh, and Liz, Liz and I. And right. we've, we've, we've got Jason on the farm now. So Jason, thankfully, um, he takes care of the milking all the time. Yeah. Sorry, who's Jason? He's our farm right. hand, cool. like manager. Okay. So when I say manager, manager of himself <laughs> and the cows. And you two, by the sound of it. And, and Liz and I. And, yeah. you know, Saturday, um, I was actually on the phone to someone who was talking to me. It was actually a restaurant about milk. And I had to say, can you hang on a second? Because I had to pull over because I was actually delivering milk because people had run out down at the... Um, uh, Mornington Peninsula area. My dad lives down there. I was like, nah, two birds, one stone. In the van I go and deliver milk. And we've <laughs> so it's seriously Les and I and um, Jace in the in the whole company. And I'd love that to change, <laughs> but we've got to make some money first. And and that's the thing where people say, oh, your milk's quite expensive because it retails between seven and eight dollars. Um, that's the real price. If I actually charged a price that would be a nice margin on it, it would be more like nine fifty, ten dollars. Right. And, and then we can... leave a little bit of silence there because most people will go, my <gasps> goodness. Versus how much is it in the supermarket if you just buy a two, Coles brand? Uh two thirty for two, two litres. Mm. It's quite incredible, isn't it? Yep. And then you walk along all the drink section. This is where I go when I need reassuring. <laughs> walk along the drink section and, you know, you've got your um, kefir and you've got your kombucha, which is every kind of in, uh, version of it now, and they all start at $4 for 350 mils. Yeah. So you multiply that So you put that, that into a litre, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and so buy three, you got $12. Mm-hmm. So people are happy to buy 
a fancy kombucha yep. with a flavour in it, but they don't want to spend $8, no. $9 on a two litres of milk. It's interesting, That would make that $24. Correct. And no one, if you put that on a shelf, you'd just go home because no one would buy it. It's a really interesting state of mind, isn't it? Yeah. And I'm, I always ask people to please consider that. I think the biggest, and I'm a consumer, you know, at the supermarket end as well. I try not to be, but I do. Yeah. And so I go in and I look along the line and you'll have obviously Coles or Woolworths, their brands. Yep. And, you know, I'm trying to think of others. You know, you've got Pools and Farmland and all the rest of it. And you can see people just kind of staring like mm. I tend to <laughs> or getting on their phone and actually trying to make a good choice. Oh, really? So Yeah. Getting on their phone? I've never seen Yeah, that. no, absolutely. Oh. Going, well, is that a good milk to buy oh. and not from a perspective of because we've had obviously all in the press about dairy farmers doing it tough, getting paid mm. very little for their milk, you know, the big nasty supermarkets, all of this kind of. So I think people are gunning for a bit of change and we're not talking everybody. I mean, obviously there's a lot of people that don't have a choice and yep. cheap buying cheap milk is what they can afford to buy and that is fine. Mm. But there's a lot of confusion still. So, you know, you'll see Paul's Organic and that'll be like five bucks or you'll mm. see, you know, farmland at whatever, nearly five bucks. And so, or Schultz Dairy. Yeah. You know, there's a few, but I think there's still a lot of confusion. I think there is. And um, especially when the majors went out and did the farmer's own and all those things, then that was, uh, that was very, uh, I'm trying to find a nice word to say that was very dishonest. So they started putting the suggestion that it was farmers, that they were looking, that it was coming from farms, not coming from majors. And it, I think ACCC ended up shutting that down. But there's also, there's this other quandary and uh, I spent time, I spend time like when I do in stores at milk fridges, <laughs> which is a strange place to spend your time. I appreciate that. But where people are trying to buy Australian owned and, you know, you've got, I think it's Great Ocean Road owned by a Japanese company. You've got all these foreign ownerships now and that's another, that's another disaster for Australian dairy because uh, I don't think it should ever have been allowed to have foreign investment. But now you've got that risk of all our, you know, like milk powder going out of Australia. What's next? I think there was that big dairy farm in Tasmania where um, the milk gets flown out every day from that farm to somewhere in China. So you've got that massive, then that's where I think you're right. Um, I, I converted people by standing at the fridge when I was doing those in-stores that you're referring to. Um, people were picking it up and I'd just say, oh, you know, hi, have you ever considered, you know, this milk? And, um, yeah, you're in a certain store where there's a certain income. But mind you, I still have a lot of supporters here who say, um, I, I would prefer to make this choice. And they buy they buy how now milk and they make their own yogurt from it because we stopped making yogurt and they make their own ice cream they do their own cream they do all their own products because they say I want my kids to know about the where the reality and stand by what I believe in. We're going to get into some interesting stuff. Oh here no! Because we, we did in our research. I think you might have told us this on the phone, but in our research, we found out you came from a completely different industry. I did. I so we've talked for the first half about your 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 dairy farming and me as a dairy farmer. Yeah. Now, what did you used to do? Uh, my career was in the music industry, Gary. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy. A dairy farmer from the music industry. I I started in um, artist management. I got my break. Uh, it came about because my brother is a musician. So um, 
uh, he had a lot of friends and I'd been travelling a lot, coming to and fro from overseas and that had just changed my mind because we grew up in Sunbury, which was, I, you know, I remember seeing a rock festival as a little kid and um, just going, this is amazing, but I'd travelled and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to get the hell out of Sunbury. So, <laughs> and I got my first break working and in artist management as an assistant and I don't know how well you know the Australian music industry, but we we managed uh, the seminal actism, and that was they were this is serious, mum, and they were the guys that used to all wear balaclavas. So <laughs> one of my and I'll never forget my honest truth. My first week of work, I rocked up to work one day, and I'd been out to a gig the night before, and I was fresh to this stuff, so I didn't know you didn't party hard. And I'd come into work the next day feeling a bit sorry and sore for myself and Ants, it was, yeah, it wasn't that, yeah, I answered the phone anyway and I get told I've got Ken Doan's lawyer on the phone and they're suing us and I'm thinking, so which one of the guys is playing a trick on me because I'm the new girl and everyone's <laughs> laughing at me? <laughs> and in fact, because of the artwork they used, this band, because they were really confrontational and... um they never did interviews without balaclavas and it was just mayhem working with them. So much fun. But they apparently had used, in in lawyer speak, Ken Doan's son. And that was, <laughs> that was like my introduction to the music industry going, this is insanity. It can only be, get better from here. But we had great, we had great bands. What was Ken Doan's son? Well, as in, you know the, so his image of The stick the figure of a yellow son in the corner of the album. It was a very confrontational cover, I must say. It was a koala bear. I don't even know if you want to hear this or use it, but um, it was a koala bear with a syringe in its mouth and it was so it was a, a piss take on Ken Doan's um, kind of artwork, but it was done irreverent. That's what they did. They just made fun of everybody. Anyone who was cool they made fun of and that was right at the hit of Ken Doan's artwork. So... So it appealed to you, being the young activist and oh. a bit of a rebel, and you've gone, you've fallen into the perfect job. What happened to the artwork, just out of curiosity? We ended up releasing, uh, and without a lie, me and one of the band members sat on the floor in the office and painted all the labels. We had to pull them back from Shock Records, painted all the labels black and had a censor due to legal advice as the label of the album stuck on the front of the album. <laughs> Which is probably better than the, <laughs> the original son. Let me tell you, the interviews were much, they came <laughs> thick and fast after that. <laughs> These guys now? Uh, well, they were school teachers. There was a couple that were school teachers and that was always the um, thing that everyone always thought they were lawyers and school teachers and they generally all had careers and would just tour on weekends. So they only did touring on a weekend and they were absolutely mad. The, the whole show was madness. They were really big in the university back when universities were having good fun gigs. So going on tour with them was never something that was great fun in a way because you never knew what they were going to do. And there was always someone injured, someone would get hurt. So you went from thinking it was a party, yeah. you know, this is what a, the best job ever, and thinking, hang on a minute, I've got to clean all this up. 
<laughs> yeah, well, that was always the manager's job. So I was the one that was taking the phone calls going, yes, we're sorry about that. Yes, we're very, very sorry. And, you know, um, they used to get riders, you know, how everyone is famous now for their stupid riders. Well, they did it when it was really uncool to be pedantic. So they'd order Dickie's towels and, you know, only – and. Um, things like, you know, red snakes and really ridiculous when no one was doing it. And if they didn't get that rider, then there'd be this whole carry on and there'd be the manager, Michael and myself kind of in a corner laughing and kind of cringing and laughing, knowing that it's going to come up. It'll be a big, there'll be a hoo-ha about this. (laughs) It was great. Great five years or six years, I think we worked there. So I if it, there. that started like that, how did it progress? Where did your career go? So I, I did was. It, where did it take you? Well, I worked with a, I worked with Michael and um, kind of cut my teeth on learning everything about it. And I just, I loved it. And I used to go into the studios all the time with lots of bands and, uh, and so the, all the, all the. Um, the idea of the celebrity thing all disappears very quickly once you start working with bands like anyone. They just are people who have their own needs. And I used to love going to the studios late at night and listening to people putting down vocals and things. So we started working with, I was working with Michael with five or so bands and then another manager gave me another job and that was with um, Hunters and Collectors, David Bridie, and I'm trying to think there was one other. And so that was a massive step up. And I loved every part of that as well because they had huge tours. They did tours with Midnight Oil. And um, and that's when I probably started to move to think, I don't really know where I want to go from here because artist management is really thankless. It's a very thankless job a lot of the time. And and then I, I moved over into... I joined the other side. I went and became, I got uh, approached to join, it was the when Murdoch came back into the music industry and started up Festival Records again, which they owned. And so we start, I got offered a job as A&R, so it's a finder and signer. So I got to work with them, really amazing artists and do you want me to name drop a few? Yeah, I was just about to say, what were the, what were the kick yourself? <laughs> I don't know if they will. That was me. I was just going, come on, come on. The kick so, yourself moments. Um, well, Powderfinger were, you know, they well, were. Oh, you know, that's okay. Pretty yeah. top in the, they were, they were touring all the time at that point. Um, Tim Rogers, amazingly, incredibly intelligent, smart, smart man. And so was um, Bernard Fanning, actually, from Powderfinger. I, well, I met. All the oils of most of those guys, and basically everyone's seminal. Uh, well, no, not seminal. I was going to say like died pretty and more of the Aussie rock. Uh, I hung around with them. You know, you just got to see them everywhere you went. There was always artists hanging around and Big Day Out and all those. You got to see all the Americans behaving badly at the Big Day Out. All the American bands and. Nick Cave, I was part of, um, we did a whole run of Melbourne shows with Nick Cave and actually our first... Our Does first... Nick Cave misbehave? Uh, yeah, that was in a really, <laughs> Nick Cave in the bad seas, that was in a We're really... We're going to get a phone from Nick's <laughs> yeah. lawyer. Yeah. That was in their really bad time, the, the big day out touring. 
That was, uh, they, a, they were partying hard at that. Have you got a big party story? I mean, <laughs> smash guitars and. No, not from them. I don't know. They, I, Nick Cave was, everyone I think wanted a piece of him. So he would just keep himself in a, in a room a lot of the time. But backstage at festivals was where all the good fun was. You know, there was, it, it was like a separate world. And I remember when I left and going out into a gig and thinking to myself, oh, is this what people do? Queue up out the front and then go in and, oh, my God, it was so boring. You know, backstage was just, you just ran around all, all the time in festivals and there was always something going on. There was always some band behaving badly. Oh, actually, one of, one of my very first band I signed was a young set of boys from Frankston called 28 Days and they were called that because of their parking fines. They always had 28 days and and they were actually, you know, would would go and do community service because they had so many parking fines, and they were Frankston boys, like true, absolutely, and they got a lot of success. They were doing that kind of hip hop where no one else was doing it. I went and saw them at this tiny little pub. A friend had said you should go and check this band out. Walked into this pub. I'm trying to think in North Melbourne somewhere. It took about a hundred people. I think there was about 140 people in there, and the entire room was bouncing. And so they were all baseball caps and big chains, and you know the baggy denims. But they rocked and they partied really hard too. <laughs> so they were my very first band I signed, and they had a lot of success. They went to America, um, but they didn't sustain that. <laughs> Why? Um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's the what, why, who, how, where. Yeah, that's exactly right. With every Australian artist, I think they, you, the, you, the few that survive, I mean, it's a really, really tough industry to survive. And it used to be when we signed bands, if I signed a band or an artist back then, I signed them for three to five albums. You'd be arguing with your lawyers over how many albums you'd get. Now it's three to five songs. And in fact, um, you know, I still have friends in the industry and they talk about that you get given $5,000 to do a song and that's your recording contract. You know, that's just insane. Different kind of hurt. Any similarities hurting musicians <laughs> and their roadies and, and cows? Yeah, well, see, people ask me that and they go, you know, um, how do you manage How do you manage cows once you've worked with, you know, if you've worked with artists? And I say, seriously, <laughs> the cows are probably better behaved. They don't, they don't push back as much or argue as much. <laughs> so there, but I think it's comes, you know, it's all you're learning those life skills about managing your expectations maybe is a big one, your expectations and um, knowing I remember because I was quite young when I started in the music industry that I didn't really understand that under the pressure they were under and you probably get understand that more. You've been living in that spotlight. I didn't understand that until I used to take them, accompany them to interviews and tours and and I remember seeing... Um, Oh, it was the Michael Hutchins thing. It was last night. <laughs> and he said, my day is two hours because that's the two hours he performs on stage. And the rest of the time is people, was people like me saying, come on, get your shit, get in the car and driving them around or taking, they had to do interviews, had to do photo shoots, they had to listen to mixings of tracks and then do sound check. And the only time they had was that that two hours on stage. And no wonder they never wanted to come off. <laughs> when people say, oh, they just want to keep playing all night, it's like, yeah, I can tell you they do usually because that's the moment that they've worked so hard for and it's like a fleeting moment of their day. 
<laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah. How do you go from that and all that excitement yeah. to uh, how many, 50 hectares did you say? Yeah, 50 acres. 50 acres, <laughs> 57 acres yeah. or wasn't it, in Shepparton. Um, with this, with with how now, and a, and a completely different set of yeah, uh, you know. I was always ambitions. I, I was always um, quite comfortable being on my own, especially because not that different when you're in when you're working with artists, you're you're talking nonstop, and so I would I actually enjoyed my own company. Mum and Dad had a beach house down at Ocean Grove and I always had Waimarana dogs, big dogs. I used to take my dog on a Friday, go to a gig and then drive down the coast and not talk to anyone all weekend. So I found a bit of solace from that just uh, being able to breathe. And after I had my daughter, um, she's 16 now, I realised I, I didn't, I, I couldn't continue with that lifestyle. It is a great lifestyle, but it's not really made, and especially back then, it was not made for women and accommodating to for women in really successful parts mm. of the industry to maintain their career and have children. So it was a decision that you had to make, and I made mine very easily. I was like, nah, go and do something else, Kathy. Went to Castle Main and opened a, <laughs> opened a cafe. <laughs> What a ridiculous idea that is. I know, right? Who'd be a chef? <laughs> it, how, yeah, exactly. Who'd be a restaurant owner? And how is it as a woman in the dairy industry? You'd be a minority too. I am a minority. I'm one of the things I, I'm really hopeful that I can try and do is get people to get more and more women to come to the forefront of their of their businesses. I think I found I found one woman that owns and operates a dairy without uh, a husband or a partner present. And uh, the rest of them, I can tell you, like n- nearly every dairy uh, farmer's wife is involved in their farm. And her- often I just look at the amount of work that they do and I actually don't know how they do that. They should switch jobs and take the dairy farming because they, you know, they often will be the ones who feed the calves and then they have the children, raise the children, run the house, do the accounts, do a lot. So I think um, women in dairy would are a welcome uh, growth area. I haven't been welcomed. <laughs> have guess. you got any examples of that that you can give us? Um yeah, I got, gosh, I got really badly uh, harangued on social media. It's it's kind of stopped now a bit, but um, I, I went through this stage right in the early days where I had vegans and dairy farmers simultaneously just heinous hate writing to me and they do it publicly, they do it privately. Um, dairy farmers, you know, I had a dairy farmer that told me uh, I didn't know shit about what I was doing. And if I, you know, if I understood dairy, then I would know that the, what they do is the only way it's possible. Um, and I used to rely probably on Les a bit and say, oh, can you reply to this? And then I went one day, you know what? <clears throat> to hell with that. I'm, I'm sick of hiding from it. I'm writing back to them all. I wrote back to the vegans and said, go to hell. Like, you know, don't you think that this is a great step forward? And, you know, I had one person write to me. I'd said, I'd put this post and said, hanging around South Melbourne market, you know, if anyone, you know, come on down, say hi. Someone, a guy wrote back to me and said, I wish I had known because I would come down there and hang you myself. And I, I read it and I laughed and then I went, 
oh, actually, he's not being funny. He's just full of hate for what I was saying, that there's a kinder way to do dairy. And that's where the dairy farmers really take offence to me because I say kinder. I, and I keep saying to them, I'm not saying don't consume dairy. I'm saying it kinder. And they say, well, you're saying we're not kind. So I think, and that's the truth, I am by by absolute definition. I'm saying there's a kinder way to do dairy and at the moment there's a bit of a head in the sand approach and the easiest thing to do is smack me around the head and say, you don't know what you're talking about. If you knew what to be as a dairy farmer, you would know that we're doing things the right way. And the vegans say there's no such thing as kind milk, so we'd prefer if you were dead. <laughs> And that's the truth. And that's kind of easing a bit now, but I still get them all the time. So what are the challenges now for how now? Shit, they're endless, Gary. (laughs) (laughs) They're, uh, you know, I've got to get, I'm going to, I want to do more products. Yeah, I was going to say. So you, because you're, if you're increasing production, it's going to take you, so Mm. if you're moving into New South Wales, as you you have done, now you're, you're now interstate supply, the supply chain, everything's just, everything's changing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, and I hate that part of it, I've got to be honest, um, of just that, all the logistics, the, the grind, which I don't need mm. to tell you, the the grind of the business. Um, I, and I get lots of questions put to me now since I went to Harris Farm in Sydney and remembering that, you know, they're a family-owned and operated stores. They're, they've got a very good story to them and I checked all that out. I went and met Met, up, met with them in Sydney. This was a long process. This has been quite a long process. But people go, oh, you've got all this milk. Um, now you're expanding. So how are you going to keep up? You're going to end up, you're going to be the next 2,000 cow dairy. And I've said absolutely point blank, our dairy will be 100 cows. So that's 60 maximum in the milking. And then I'm looking for the next farm. I don't want to go and have 10 dairy farms. I believe that there's going to be a groundswell, that people, the demand will help. And I can also pay dairy farmers a really fair price. So the commitment is there from them, like like how you have Demeter, like how you have organic. There is an accreditation process that Les and I are in the process of doing that would mean that they're audited their setup and everything is that you are an ethical dairy co, you know, stamp recognised farm, and I would I would hope that that would all still come through me uh, through how now, so it's not watered down. Uh, pardon that pun, but um, you know, so it's not watered down and the integrity is kept there, but that more and more farms join us, and there's still you go into areas there's still small dairy farms, so I would hope that's the way forward. You know, from my perspective and my family vouch for this, you know, because people always ask that thing about organic. Like, does it taste any different? (laughs) What's really interesting, when you make yogurt from your milk or you make cheese from your milk, it kind of amplifies the qualities that it has. Mm. So if I make yogurt, which I'm now making every week, I make a couple of litres a week. keep seeing it. I know, it's good. Keep waiting. And my daughter is, well, my daughter's (laughs) just finished school and she went through uh, VCE uh, powered by (laughs) yogurt and banana first thing in the morning and your milk was part of it. But you can taste the difference, absolutely. Mm. And so if I make it with a different milk, and I've been, you know, I thought, oh, I'll try this organic milk and see, you can taste the difference. So it's really interesting. So mm. you've got a big fan from my side. And interestingly, I mean, I pick up mine from uh, Cannings yep. uh, Butchers or from the Pram Market where, where I tend yep. to shop. But it's nice to see that there are lots of outlets. So people mm. jump on to your Instagram yeah, particularly. And where else to find out where they buy Inst- your milk? Uh, a website. 
It so has all website. our stockists on the website yep. now. So and get I keep, behind it. I keep trying to update it. Can I just say, I just wanted to add about that flavour. Um, one of the things about the um, actual composition of the milk, so is that I don't, I think cortisol plays a massive role. We know it plays a massive role in meat and I think it plays a massive role in dairy produce, but no one's testing it. No one's going down that road. But people write to me and say, I don't know what it is about your milk, but there's something strange. I had a woman on the weekend who did this car, um, little ad on her own Insta that said, I, I bought your milk to start having it in my coffee. I've stopped having coffee and I just have your milk. <laughs> and I was like, wow, like you can't get a compliment better than that. But there's, there's just these natural compositions in there from happier cows that um, play that are at play when you start to work with that product, and we do nothing to it. It comes out of the cows, it gets pasteurised, and then it gets into a bottle. That's it. Brilliant, <laughs> Kathy Palmer. Hopefully, all the plans, <laughs> the, the great ideas, come to fruition. I'm a massive fan, and, and I'm hoping that everybody that's listening to this will go out and buy your milk. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Gary. I really appreciated it. If you follow my Instagram, you'll see that I've, I've been through a little bit of a cheese-making phase at the moment. Just one of those things I never got round to that I thought, you know what, I'm going to nail it. And I've made all sorts of cheeses. But one of the simplest things that I do now, which the whole family love, is to make yoghurt. So you start with a great milk, like How Now, and I use it regularly because it tastes delicious. And there's a couple of things you need to do. You need to warm it up to about 37 degrees, which is not that hot. It's about blood temperature, essentially. And you add to two litres of milk... 120 grams of milk powder. You just mix it until it's dissolved. Then you lift the temperature, so you're bringing it up nice and slowly and stirring it to 90 degrees. Now, you will need a thermometer, but essentially it's just until the milk starts to get a little foamy and looks like it's going to come up to the boil. Turn it off, pop a lid on it, and you leave it for five minutes. Then you take it off and you cool it down to 37 degrees. Sounds like a palaver, doesn't it? But actually, when you get to this bit, it's quite easy. Once it gets to 37, which is, again, that nice kind of warm, it's like blood temperature. It's like where all those little bugs and bacteria do all their jobs. In this case, this is where the culture does its job. Now, you've got a choice. You can either buy a little bit of yogurt culture off the internet. So there's a couple of uh, websites where you can go to, like cheesemaking.com.au, where you can buy it, and you'll buy a little culture. It costs about $11. They'll send it to you, keep it in the freezer, and you add actually the tiniest, tiniest little pinch of that culture, mix it in, and then keep it in a nice warm environment. I've got a setting on my oven, which is around about 35, 40 degrees, or you can put it in an airing cupboard or a little warm spot, you know, covered in a a blanket. And what will happen is the cultures will go to work. It takes about 12 hours. So I'm talking about doing it in the afternoon and overnight magic happens and it turns into yogurt. Essentially, lovely set yogurt. A Plate to Call Home is a Podcast One production produced by Dave Swalensky with audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.